We're so glad that you've tuned in to our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Leo Alstrom, the worship arts pastor here at Rolling Hills Community Church. Today, we're continuing our series titled One Voice. Pastor Nick will be teaching from Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and focusing on our role as Christ followers in reaching out to those in our spheres of influence. Now here's Nick. Good morning. I'm really glad that you guys are here. I've been a little hyper this morning. Some may blame the coffee, but I just blame the Lord. Um, I think there's some really good things happening for us in the life of this series, and I'm excited to dive in this morning. Um, This week was, um, we'll just call it special because I don't know what else to call it. I showed up at 5.30 on Thursday morning with an entire new crop of 413 Strong residents. Now, many of you guys know those guys um, as folks who become part of a residential program to help them uh, get established and make wise choices and learn job skills, but not only job skills, but also to be discipled in Christ so that they can know what it means to be a man. Uh, and, And those guys will actually be joining us for our second service today. I'm excited to see them again, but on Thursday mornings, Craig and I, a couple other guys, we show up at 5.30 in the morning over to the residence in which they live, and it's outside Um, It's super cold. It's super hard. It's a really difficult workout called F3. And the very first one out of the gate after the warm-up, I laughed out there in the freezing cold with my buddy of the day whose name was, um, everybody gets a nickname. His was Benjamin Button. I don't know how he's aged backwards. He's only 20. Okay, so we're sitting there and we're working out and they tell us that this very next exercise is called bunny killers or murder bunnies, one or the other. And I thought that was really funny because we have bunnies. Um, I may have shown you pictures of them before. Don't say awe. These are little demons. They're terrible little creatures. There's another one. There's actually two of them. Their names are Fred and Ethel. We're convinced biologically that they're both female, which is a good thing. Um, And yeah, I'm quite certain that the Lord gave us these bunnies, one, to appease my children, and two, to give me sermon illustration after sermon illustration, because bunny killers, or murder bunnies, I can't remember, was literally taking cinder blocks and getting down on all fours and having to push them through the wet grass all the way across a field. And I thought to myself, if some little rabbit who's burrowed in a hole sticks his head up at just the right moment, we really are going to murder some bunnies out here. And I kept thinking about that illustration over, I was like, danger, 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 and it reminded me of a story that happened just a little over a year ago at our house because the bunnies were sleeping outside as they do during the um, summer and spring and fall months. In the winter, we bring them into the garage because they are not, I repeat, not ever coming in the actual house. And so right now they're in the garage, but at this time it was spring. They were out in the hutch that lives outside of our bedroom. And in the middle of the night, Susan and I begin to hear this sound. It's just a slow banging sound. We don't know what it is. We're like, what is that? Do you hear? And she nominates me to go outside and check to see what that sound is. It's right outside our bedroom. I go outside and I'm like, I'm examining and I can tell that it's coming from the bunny hutch. And I go over to the bunny hutch and I look at them and I'm like, what are you guys doing? And, and I realize they're thumping their feet, which made me think of the movie Bambi. It's a sad one at the end, but I was like, call that rabbit thumper. And I'm thinking, okay, these, these are thumping bunnies. So there we are laying, but you can't tell them to stop. They're not smart. They don't obey like the dog or the children. They literally just keep thumping. And as we go inside, eventually it dies down. But of course, we're wide awake and I'm Googling, why is my bunny thumping outside? And there's actually a whole reason. Apparently, bunnies are 
pack animals. They live in like whole big hutch moots of all the other bunnies, the wild ones that you see out in your yard. Many of them will burrow under the ground or inside tree trunk, all these kind of places where the bunnies live. If one of them detects that there's a predator or danger, that one will thump his feet as an alarm to anybody else, all the other bunnies. Hey, take cover, there's a predator on the loose. We have coyotes in Creve Hall, so I'm quite certain that that's why the bunnies were thumping to alert all the other bunnies that are out there, not safe inside their hutch that we built, that there's a predator. And last week as we entered into this, we continued through this idea of one voice. Pastor Jeff from our central campus was preaching in all places and he literally went through John 10, 10, which says the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly or have life to the full. There's a warning out there that we have an enemy and we gotta be prepared. And so today we land in this part of what our, our, our vision statement as a church says this is Rolling Hills Community Church is a people of God reaching out, growing up, and giving all. And the reaching out portion is where we land today. Don't tune me out just because, oh, he's about to preach a message on evangelism. But it says in Matthew chapter 28, many of you will recognize this as what we identify as Jesus's great commission. It's not the only commission that he gave us. It's not the only command that he gave us, but it is a really important one. It's one of the final ones. Matthew records it in chapter 28, starting in verse 18, and literally, I don't have my page turned to the right place. That's unfortunate. Matthew chapter 28, starting with verse 18. I'm turning alongside you, and it says this. Talk amongst yourselves. I'll give you a topic. It says this. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'll put my rubber band there for the next service. Therefore, go, here's what you know, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. There are four commands as a part of that section of scripture. And you could literally just underline them in your Bibles or take them in your notes. It's literally the words go, make, baptize, and teach. And if we were gonna do a grammar lesson this morning, we'll actually sidetrack ourselves and get dive deep into some grammar. Some people are automatically gonna tune me out because like, I don't like grammar, Pastor Nick, it's really terrible. But there's four imperative commands as a part of this. And there's one specific one, and you, it's not gonna be the one that you think. It's not, oh, the, the verbal imperative in this passage of scripture has to be the word go. That is certainly an imperative command, but the real one is to make disciples. And then all the other words, the go, the baptize, and the teach are what we call present participles. And present because they're happening right now. Like a participle is actually a verb that can kind of come and act for a moment like another verb and be used interchangeably with an adjective or an adverb. You've definitely tuned me out at this point. But you can have past participles, and typically we end those in ed, like I boiled water. Well, that would imply that I did it yesterday. It's a past participle. That, that boiled water is the you don't even care. The active present participle, typically, not always, but typically, we end those in I-N-G. So it's not so much just go, but as you are going, make disciples. 
And, and while you are baptizing, you're making disciples. And when you are teaching, you are making disciples. This, this present active participle, the present part means that we're supposed to be doing this right now, every day, all day. The active part means that it's supposed to make us sweat like a murder bunny activity. Like it's literally supposed to be something that we spend actual energy doing, making disciples. How do we accomplish it? Well, we go and we baptize and we teach. It's in your notes this morning, but I want to make sure it's, it's really clear for all of us. This was not the first time that God said to go. This wasn't the first time that God said to go. It would not be the last time that God said to go. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, he's talking to a guy named Abram. We eventually called him Abraham, and the Lord said to him, go from your country, your people, and your father's household. People didn't do that back then. They didn't move out of state. My parents live out of state. Susan's parents live out of state. They would say that we're the ones who live out of state. Many of you live out of state. You're not close to your parents or your grandparents. You gotta board a plane, and nobody's really doing that right now. You gotta board a plane or a, a car. You gotta take a long journey in order to get, people didn't do that back then. You literally lived in your father's household, a part of his land, a part of his lifestyle, until if you're a woman, you got married, then you went and lived with your father-in-law's household. But back then, people didn't leave their families to to go on any sort of like academic journey or any kind of vocational journey and certainly not a missional journey but God said to Abram go 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 from your country and from your people and from your father's household to the land basically I'm going to show you when you get there no GPS you're just going to get there when you get there to someplace new Someplace challenging. That's the essence of missional living, that God calls us to go someplace. That's why so many of us are active with Justice and Mercy International. And every time we get an opportunity to go, we go. And we are praying and we are longing and we are ready for the moment when Mary Catherine says to us, hey, let's go and we will give money and we will get on planes and we will go to these places because we know that we want to be an active part of Jesus's command that was a reflection of the original command that God gave Abram. Go somewhere. Go someplace. This is important. Later on in Genesis chapter 17, he, he says, this is my covenant with you, Abram. You will be the father of many nations, not just one nation of Jewish people, but many nations, including all the Gentiles and all the peoples from all over the world that will get to be a part of the family of God because of what? Because of this great commission of Jesus when he says, go to whom? One nation? No, he says, go to all nations. God started there with the word go, and he's been saying go ever since this week. I had the pleasure of reading an Instagram, Facebook post of Elizabeth Brock in our community. And she's celebrating five years ago that God told her to go to Nashville. And, and she came, and she's been here. I remember just a couple of years ago, it was in December of 2017 that we knew that God was going to be launching a Nashville campus of Rolling Hills Community Church and Jeff and Mary Catherine and Kelly Minter and others had been literally exploring all kinds of places that we could come in this city and many of us as a staff team we were called to pray that God would open up just the right door and as we approached the end of 2017 God gave us an opportunity to be at Belmont University with Belmont Heights Baptist Church and so it came to Nick it wasn't necessarily the voice of God in the moment it was the voice of Jeff Simmons hey will you go for just a short time it was like a short-term mission trip, a little longer than a week. It was going to be three months. Going to take us to Easter. Will you guys go to the Nashville campus? Sure, we'll do it. We'll go to, and as we went, as we were going, as we were present active participle at Belmont Heights, what we realized is that God was moving us permanently. 
and that it wasn't just going to be this three-month stint. So then we had our kids pray, like, what's this going to look like for us? What's it, what's it going to be like for you guys? And we didn't want to just go and commute on Sundays, because we lived down in Spring Hill, which was, listen, you can get from Spring Hill to Belmont on a Sunday morning. Nobody else is trying to, so you're like the only one on the interstate. It was an easy commute, but the goal was never to just go on Sundays. It was to be present other times during the week. It, it was a ministry of presence, so God, God called us to go, and so 11 years into our journey with Rolling Hills, we went, and now we're here, and then God said, go again, and here we are over at Park Avenue, and we've united not just two campuses, but three campuses, becoming one to be a church in this community. Has God ever told you to go? I know I say that to a lot of lifers, like there's people who literally are born and raised Nashville. What I want to hear you say is that God may not be calling you to go to Zimbabwe, but God's definitely calling you to go to your neighbor, to go down the street, to head up and down Charlotte, to go to the cubicle next to you at work, to go to the classroom, to go to the office, to, as you are going, every other place you're going, including Kroger, make disciples. As you are present right now, active, get sweaty, put some effort into it. As you are going, you are to be making disciples. Wasn't the first time that God said go. It also wasn't the first time that God said make. Jesus said make disciples. Wasn't the first time. God had been saying that literally from the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, he, he looked at Adam and Eve and he blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Some of your Bible translations, if you're not using the NIV, if you're like the ESV or the NASB, it's literally going to say, go and multiply. Literally, make more of what you are. And so when Jesus says, go and make disciples, that making disciples is literally the word multiply. God repeated that command to Noah and his sons. You guys go forth and increase in number. You multiply. He repeated that same command to Jacob, who was Abram's great son, great, or grandson. He says, hey, you increase in number. You need to multiply. And then Jesus says it to us in the Great Commission, because as we are going and as we are doing the lives that he's called us to live and engaging in the activities that he's called us to engage and being a part of the relationships that he's put in front of us, he literally says, make disciples, multiply faith-filled believers. When, when a believer in Jesus Christ is baptized, because he says, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father. We celebrate believer's baptism at Rolling Hills. That means somebody who has made a decision to know and to follow Jesus Christ for a person's salvation experience. And, and what we believe is that only those baptisms are explicit in Scripture. And there's a lot of implication that infant baptism could have been happening when it says like, oh, the Philippian jailer and his entire household were saved. Well, maybe there was a baby in that household. We don't know. There are implied moments where we know that infant baptism can be a part of somebody's story, but we follow through with what's known as believer's baptism. Believer's baptism after a person becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. And an infant can't yet become a believer in Jesus Christ because the priest is not looking at that infant and saying, hey, do you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? And that infant is saying, will you feed me and change my diaper? It's literally not a decision that they're prepared to make in their life, and it's not a comprehension that they can offer into the moment. So we celebrate believer's baptism after a person has known and followed Jesus as a part of their salvation story. But that's not where I want to land. Where I want to land is what baptism is. We celebrate baptism in the way that we do, submersion into water, because it illustrates what Jesus did for us on the cross, that he died and was buried under that water, 
and then he raised to walk in a brand new life. And so when a person goes into that water to tell the story of, I am a follower of Jesus, they're identifying with Christ in his burial and identifying with Christ in his resurrection, and they're proclaiming to the world and any witnesses around them, I am a follower of Jesus. We're proclaiming the application of what Jesus did to the life of the person who's committing themselves to him. Ultimately, baptism identifies us with Jesus and identifies us with other followers of Jesus. And so you're saved, and then you're dunked, and then you're done, right? You would think so. The problem is, in, in, our, in our Bible belt of cultural Christianity, that's how we've done it. If we can get somebody saved and we can get somebody dunked, then we can be done with them and move on to the next person. And it vacates the important parts of this commissional plan that we would literally make disciples. We had a program when I was growing up. Many of you may have had a program like this in the life of your church. It was called discipleship training. It was an hour a week. And the problem with identifying any sort of program, it was a good idea. People did a great job with it for years and years and years. The problem with identifying a program hour called discipleship training and isolating that one hour of your week and saying this is your discipleship training is the fact that now every other hour of the week is not discipleship. And if you can identify one hour of your life as discipleship, you can isolate that hour, you can put that hour in a box, you can take it off a shelf when you need to, and it forgets and it neglects that the rest of your life is to be about learning to follow Jesus. Discipleship as a Christian isn't something that you sign up for. It's not something that you pay money to rent a book for. It's literally supposed to be something that you are. And a disciple of Jesus will be making others. Francis Chan wrote a book called Multiply. And it's literally about that idea of discipleship. Be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply your faith in others. And he says this, making disciples is far more than a program. It's the mission of our lives. It defines us. A disciple is a disciple maker. You take the opposite of that, you know what it means? Someone who is not a disciple maker may not be a disciple. We're to be fruitful and and, and to multiply. This wasn't the first time that God said increase, but it may be one of the most important times that God said increase. It's also not the first time that he said teach. It says in in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, these are the commands, the decrees, and the laws that the Lord your God directed me to teach to you. This is Moses talking. Hey, this is what God told me to teach you, that you're supposed to observe this in the land that you're crossing over the Jordan to possess. And if you look back at all those commands, all those words of Moses, all those words of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, if you look back over that, what you'll find is a whole lot of really hard, difficult teaching. A lot of hard pills to swallow. I was a youth pastor for the first I don't know, 11 years of my ministry career. And in youth ministry, a lot of times what you're doing is you're playing defense. A person's worldview is formed by the time they leave the fifth grade. So when you get them in middle school, they've got all this baggage already built up of how they view the world, how they view God, how they see people and relationships and what their emphasis is. You see, all these things are already formed. And so in youth ministry, a lot of times what you're doing is unpacking all the wrong and enforcing and and, and really supporting all the right. And what you're really trying to do is to, I don't know, keep them safe until they end up as adults because it's a really trying time. And in the middle of youth ministry, you teach hard things. I had kid after kid after kid come to me. 
facing really difficult circumstances in life, really big challenges at school, really big challenges at home, really big challenges in the world of friendships and especially in the worlds of dating and all the temptations that exist. And there are far more, it seems now, than there were even 10 years ago. And they would come to me and they would have these crises of faith where they would say, Pastor Nick, I'm not sure that I'm a Christian. I'm like, well, well, tell me how you became a Christian. It would often include this part of the story. Well, I was baptized when I was nine. Well, that's, that's a great story about your baptism, but I didn't ask about your baptism. I asked about your salvation experience. I asked how you became a follower of Jesus Christ, and many of them couldn't unpack it for me. For a lot of them, it's because it had happened before their age of even being able to remember what they had done as early as like five and six and seven years old, where you don't remember the details of that story. And for most of them, it was because there'd been an absence of discipleship in their life for all those years of the moment when they accepted Christ and trusted him as Savior, literally believed that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save them from their sins. There was an absence of teaching after that baptism moment. It's like, oh, you're dunked, you're done. And they forgot all the things that they were supposed to learn and the things that you need to understand to embrace Jesus at eight, let's just be honest, are really different than the things that you need to understand to embrace Jesus at 18 or 28 or 38, but that foundation was supposed to be being built all along the way, and now we have these teenagers in a crisis of faith wanting to get saved again, or wanting to get baptized again, or wanting to, hey, let's come up with a word for that. We'll say recommit or rededicate your life to Christ then, and it was because there was an absence of discipleship all the way around to where they did not know and have any sort of assurance of, do I understand who Jesus is? And for most of them, it was because of something that I encountered in kids' ministry. Because after being a youth pastor for a while, I did a stint in children's ministry. Now, that's offense. You got the ball. Kids are listening to you. They're excited to be there. They love to play games, and they love to repeat stories, and they're raising their hands and dancing in their seats because they can't wait to tell you that David killed Goliath, and they want to tell all the great stories, and you're forming a worldview. So I was like, well, this is really fun. I've been playing defense all these years, and here's my extent of all of my sports knowledge. Now I get to play offense. I've got the ball, and we're literally going to plant something in these kids, and we're not just going to get them to trust Christ as their Savior. We're actually going to baptize them and then disciple them along the way so that they know what it means to follow Jesus as a 10-year-old and then as an 11-year-old, and then they know what it means to follow Jesus as a 13- and 14-year-old, and then hopefully somebody can take that kid that we've handed them in kids' ministry to youth ministry and continue that discipleship process along the way. You know, there was an emphasis, there always has been, how many salvations can we record? How, how many baptisms can we check as a church? And we celebrate each one of those stories. And the truth of the matter, I learned this in kids' ministry really early on, is that if I wanted to have record numbers of salvations and baptisms every single Sunday, I could. Because you give me a group of kids in a room like this, telling some stories, making them laugh, engaging them, and getting them to pay attention, by the end of that talk, I could have every single, and I was at Franklin campus during many of those years and standing in front of a room full of 200 kids at a time, I could have had every single one of those K through fifth grade kids raising their hands, repeating some words, and trusting Jesus for our salvation every single Sunday. And that would not have been salvation, that would have been manipulation. You wanna increase our number of baptisms? Let me add a group of kids. I can get them to say they'll get dunked into some water. And all that would have ever been is a really ineffective bath. You don't even use soap, and it only lasts a second. It wouldn't have been a salvation experience. It, it wouldn't have been an identifying with Christ moment. I know that we're teaching hard things. We're examining hard truths. We're up 
upending some of the things that many of us have believed our whole lives. That if, oh, if I'll just repeat some words when the pastor says them. That's not the prayer of salvation. That's an incantation. It's not the words you say. It's the posture of your heart. There's a, a book called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart because we've taken all this language for years and years and years, and we said, oh, if I can just get somebody to ask Jesus to come into their heart, well, if you're a literal thinker, like, what's he going to do in there? I thought he was bigger. How's he going to fit inside? Is there a sofa? Do you take naps? Where's the kitchen? Like, that's, come, ask Jesus into your heart. What about come and be the Lord of your life? What about I surrender myself to everything that you are, and I freely accept and trust the fact that you died in my place? There's better language out there. This idea of what it means to be a disciple and how salvation is applied to a person's life. I left kids' ministry to go into adult ministry, and then you get to talk about soteriology, a theology surrounding salvation, and how does a person actually experience it? Who does the work? Is it you getting your life all right and figuring everything out and finally getting to a place where you're ready to surrender to God? Or is it you in all of your sin and despair going your own way and the Holy Spirit of God working out all the details to draw you to the person of Jesus Christ so that you can recognize sin, repent and turn from that sin, and gratefully realize that you didn't have to do anything to deserve the fact that Christ died in your place? What's our understanding of salvation and who it's available to and how it's applied to a person's life? Dean and Sarah just wrote a book. It was released this year. It's called Unsaved Christians. Now, that's a title that'll make you go to sleep at night. He says, a church that refuses to call people to die to themselves and follow Christ is gonna be full of a whole bunch of people who admire and who are cool with Jesus as long as he doesn't interfere with their lives. The tagline of the title of that book, Unsaved Christians, is reaching cultural Christianity with the gospel. In the beginning of the book, he tells a story of being out of seminary and leaving Kentucky and, and looking at another seminary graduate who was standing alongside him and saying, wow, that guy's going to Northern California. He's literally going to an unreached people group mission field, and I'm just going back to Georgia. And kind of feeling bad in that moment, the guy who's going to Northern California literally tells him, hey, I'm praying for you because where you're going is hard. And Dean's like, what do you mean hard? You're going to Northern California. Those people are literally anti-gospel. And he's like, yeah, but you're going to a whole bunch of people who think they have the gospel, and that's harder. A whole bunch of people who checked a box at one point in their life and who said, okay, I'm going to be a Christian just like my mom and my grandma and my great-grandma before me but who never followed Jesus. Billy Graham says a really scary thing, and I'll mess up the statistic. It doesn't really matter. You get the point. He says two-thirds of the people that are sitting in your pews or your chairs on any Sunday morning in any Bible Belt church are literally dying and spending eternity apart from God because what they think they're going to hear one day is not, in fact, what they're going to hear. When Jesus looks at them and says, hey, depart from me, I don't know you. It's like a warning, letting everybody know that there really is danger ahead. 
Jesus saying these words, go and make and baptize and teach, it's not the first time he said go. It's not the first time he said make. It's not the first time that he said baptize. It's not the first time that he said teach. But it is a really important time. It makes me thump. And it it keeps me awake. That there might on our watch be a generation of people who, who grow up with a false sense of salvific security because they said some words when they were 10 and they walked some aisle, big deal. Did you know and follow Jesus? Jesus commissioned his disciples to be missional people. It wasn't a new plan, but it was a new understanding of God's plan because they've always been a missional people. And this is why this is so important. This is why this matters so much because of Romans 10, 17. It says this, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message And the message is heard through the word about Christ. Chan said in the book Multiply, he says, making disciples is all about seeing people transformed, like literally changed from the inside out, transformed by what? By the power of God's word. They cannot be transformed by the power of a word that they have not heard. Faith comes from hearing the message. And what is the message? The message is heard about the word of Christ. He had said just a couple of verses before that in chapter 10, verse 15, how can anyone preach unless they are sent? It's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That's what gospel means, good news. And if you want to know if you're sent, read Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20. You are sent. So why don't we do it? If we literally know that it's that important, why don't we do it? If we know that that word about Christ is how somebody's going to receive the message about Jesus, why don't we go and why don't we teach and why don't we make and why aren't we standing in that water every single Sunday morning baptizing a brand new believer in faith who's ready to start their discipleship journey of knowing what it means to follow Jesus? Our Nolansville campus pastor this morning, Jason Hale, we, we share our notes throughout the week. He's gonna say this. If, if people are looking for a reason, if us, if we're, if we're looking for a reason not to go, and not to share, we will easily find one. In fact, we'll easily find a thousand. There's a thousand reasons not to do this. You can come up with a really long, I might offend somebody. I don't really quite know all the things that I'm supposed to say. I don't have an answer to all of their questions. I don't wanna make somebody less likely to trust Jesus, so I'm just not gonna talk about Jesus. There's a, a million reasons not to share, but one really viable reason to share, Jesus said to. He said to, ultimately, the underlying reason why we as a church aren't accomplishing this every single day, we call this the Great Commission, but we view it as a great consideration, an option that we we, we might want to engage in. These, of of the final words of Jesus, they were never meant to be observed. They were supposed to be obeyed. The reason why we don't get Matthew chapter 28 verse 19 right, the reason why we don't get Matthew chapter 28 verse 20 right is because we don't get Matthew chapter 28 verse 18 right. We don't do authority well. That's kind of American of us, right? Like we just don't do authority well. Jesus' authority is what gives us the right to share And then he says, I'll be with you always, even to the end of age. His presence is what gives us the power to share. You don't get Jesus's power if you don't submit to Jesus's authority. The reason we don't get 28, 19, and 20 right is because we don't get 28, 18 right. 
He said, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, you go. You do what I'm telling you to do. Because I've got the power. I literally thought about singing that part of the song from the 80s, but then I thought, well, that would be kind of ridiculous. There's a warning out there. And the warning is that we don't know how long we have. That, that's, that's part of the reasons. Well, we just don't know how long we have. Well, it, somebody really needs to be older. They've just got to walk through some stuff first. They've just got to figure some stuff out. Or I've just really got to work on this and, and, and work on some details in my own life and some relationships in my life. and some, I've got to memorize some words. I've got to, there's a lot that I've got to do before I can go and make disciples. Well, I'm glad you know how much time you have. Because Job 14.5 says that we don't but that God does, that a person's days are determined. It says God has decreed the number of his months and set limits that he cannot exceed. We should hear that like a warning. What that means, because I've been in this circumstance. You have too. You've been in the circumstance with the loved one in your life who's like 95 years old. And, and not with it mentally and physically. They're just in so much pain. And as a believer, a faithful believer in Jesus Christ, you have, you have known that that person is a faithful believer in Jesus Christ. And all you long for and all you pray for is that God would, in his mercy, take that person home where they can be healed, where they can be restored, where the suffering can end, where the pain can be gone, where the illusions and the delusions and all the difficulty can be over. All you, you pray for, you pray that God in his mercy would, would spare that person any more days. Like They lived a long life a faithful, a fruitful life, and you long for them to hear those words and to be able to stand again and to be able to sing again and just to be in the presence of Jesus for all eternity. So, so you pray, oh Lord, take them. But it just seems to linger on and on and on. That person's not getting extra because God knew the number of days and the number of months. There is a limit that that person cannot exceed and they have not reached it yet. We've also been on the other side of the story. The 16-year-old in a car accident, that's just gone. The 30-year-old the, the, the mom who discovered the lump, and it's just fast and over. And you're like, why, God? Why only 30 years? Why only 16? Why only, I'm, I'm 42, why only 42? And somehow we think in those moments that that person went Two, they didn't go too early. But they didn't exceed their limit. And none of us know what the limits are. It's a warning. The Great Commission is a command. And it comes off of the heels of a thousand biblical warnings that you and I don't get to know. We're just not sure. Jesus Christ applied to a life. We don't work for him to earn him, but we, we work and we sweat because of him because we recognize that his sacrificial blood was applied to our life so that we could go out and live that life in effort to see that blood applied to the lives of others. 
Your faith in Jesus is extremely personal, but it was never meant to be private. In fact, the essence of having faith in Jesus is being willing to share that faith with others. And so today we sit on the cusp of two really big invitations. Would you examine your heart and your life and come to a place in confidence where you say, yes, Christ's sacrifice applied to me. That's salvation. His blood spread on the doorframe of your house. His sacrifice so that you wouldn't have to. That's salvation. And the mark of it is discipleship. If you're not making disciples, are you a disciple yourself? So the first invitation is to be clear. Is Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of your life? And then the next is to go. To go and to make and to baptize and to teach so that other people can confidently say to, yes, Jesus Christ is the Lord and the Savior of my life and his sacrifice has been applied to me in such a way that when God looks at me, he doesn't say, no, depart, I don't know you. He says, come on in. Good and faithful servant. My child. Rolling Hills Community Church is a people of God, but only if you know Jesus. Rolling Hills Community Church is a people of God reaching out because we've been commanded and because it's part of who we are. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the chance to be in this place and to look at your word and to understand the power of what it says. My prayer, um, my whole prayer, is that this warning would be real. It's not a bunny rabbit saying there's danger ahead. It's a powerful word saying that there is life ahead, but only if we know and follow your son. God, my prayer is that we would be sitting amongst a group of powerful disciple makers, people that want nothing more than to see others experience the joy that we have in Jesus and to turn and trust him with their lives. And so, Father, would you convict us? Would you commit us? Would you invite us? Would you empower us to be people who know your gospel and share it with others? That's who you have created us to be, and that's what you saved us for. That's why you keep leaving us here. That's why we're still here. That's why we have more days. That's why we have more months. That's why we have an extended limit. It's so we can go and make disciples. So Jesus, would you help us? It's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more about what's going on in the life of Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app or visit the website at rollinghills.church. From there, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook to stay up to date on what's happening and also ways that you can connect. We're thankful for you and we hope that this podcast has enriched your life as a Christ follower.